Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer. I am Max Barrick. And I'm Ahmed Bindra. And we are welcoming back Carolyn Aberman today. She is a managing partner and the national in-house practice group leader for the Lucas Group. Carolyn also works with legal talent personally to help place them in a wide range of legal positions and is the co-founder of Chicago School GPS. Carolyn, welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be back. So last time you came on, you were kind enough to give us a lot of advice on how to switch firms, on mistakes, and good ideas that people go through when they change jobs and the like. We wanted to talk more about you on this one and how you got to where you are. So you used a phrase that a couple of our mutual friends like to use and said you're a recovering attorney. So what does that mean? And what did you be, what were you before you went into recovery? (laughs) So, uh, I think I'm a recovering attorney because much like being an alcoholic, just because you stop practicing law, you can never change the fact that you're an attorney. So, you know, I really am not using sort of those direct legal skills on a day-to-day basis, but I am using the benefit of having had those experiences working in a number of different legal environments. So uh, a lot of my recruiter colleagues are also former attorneys, but I think the vast majority of legal recruiters practiced for a pretty short period of time. Some of them didn't practice at all and moved to recruiting because the job market wasn't that good. And others practiced for a few years before they realized it wasn't for them. I actually really enjoyed my legal practice. And prior to switching out of practice for something else, I worked in a number of different legal environments. Right out of law school, I actually worked in public interest, doing public interest criminal defense. Then I went to a labor and employment boutique. And when I attended law school, I'd always thought that I would want to do something with a litigation focus. But that year told me that litigation probably wasn't for me. So after that, I moved to the corporate restructuring department at Skadden Arp which is kind of a hybrid in between litigation and transactional. And after that, I did what many big law attorneys do, and I went in-house for a few years. And at that point, after you know, approximately 13, 14 years of, of practicing, there were just a number of factors that led to my decision, really at that point, to give recruiting a shot right? I hadn't decided that this was going to be my career for a decade or for the rest of my my working years, because I just didn't know. I also really felt like I would be in a good position to go back to legal practice if recruiting didn't work out. And where better to be to find a new job than to be in a recruiting firm? So I knew that I had had all these experiences that people could benefit from, and I knew that I wanted a job in the city. I knew I was looking for something with some flexibility because at that point I had three young children and it was difficult for me to to manage all of those obligations. And 
I knew that I loved working with people. So it really seemed on its face like it could be a great career, but as with anything, you never know until you give it a shot. So I, I made that move 10 years ago and never looked back. It's been great. So you mentioned in our last episode that your dad was an attorney too. Is he who, did he inspire you to go to law school or were there a different reason? Oh, it was a hundred percent. My dad, he definitely always told me when, when I was growing up and for some of the younger listeners on this podcast, they might not even know that this was a thing, but you know, he always told me, Oh, you know, you have to, to go to college. You have to go to grad school. You have to support yourself. Right. There was, you know, kind of when, when he was coming up, right. Not all women did that. And it was very important to him that I have a career and that I have a profession and I enjoyed working with him. And like I said, it just, at some point I decided I was going to go to law school and be a lawyer and I just never looked back. It just was the plan. That's a, that's a wonderful message from your dad. It sounds like he, maybe he wasn't ahead of his time, but it sounds like he was up with the times maybe we could say and had a great view of, of how you ought to approach things. Are you, are you comfortable sharing what kind of, what kind of law he practiced? You said he was a small town lawyer. Of course. Yes. Small town lawyer, a little office, right? Uh, across from the courthouse in uh, Greensburg, Pennsylvania, which is the county seat for Westmoreland County. And he had just a varied business practice with some transactional, some litigation, but a solo practice, you know, law office of David Argold. So I feel like that's a lot of that stuff. If you walk around Chicago, right, you still sometimes see like neighborhood shops that do a little bit of everything, but I, with zero statistical evidence, just based on anecdotes and my own, perhaps misguided perceptions. I feel like that small town lawyer feel, maybe that's a, it's gone the way, you know, gone the way of the past, or that's kind of a, uh, maybe that's not a thing anymore, but it's nice that he got to have that. And I mean, do you, do you ever talk about like, did he enjoy getting close to people in the town? Did a lot of people know who he was as a result? Was it that kind of thing? Oh yeah, he was definitely very well known by the Westmoreland County Bar. And I think that, that yeah, he really liked being a, a big fish in a small pond. He was, you know, he did very well in law school. He was editor-in-chief of the University of Pittsburgh Law Review. He definitely would have had options with larger firms in Pittsburgh, but he just knew what he wanted to do. And I think he, he really liked being an active member of a smaller community. I'm sure it was cool for him too to see you first go to University of Pennsylvania and a Northwestern Law School. Well, he also went to University of Pennsylvania, so he was clearly excited when when I joined him and my brother uh, went there as well. And yes, he was very excited when I went to Northwestern and then got my my legal practice off the ground. So, how was the transition going from SCAD and then to in-house? Was that difficult or was that kind of seamless for you? No transition is seamless. I think that, you know, the people that think that they're going to make a move and they're just going to pick up on day one and, and everything's going to be great. I just, I, I don't know if that happens. Now, there were certain things about it that, that were seamless, right? Just like with any place where you work or anything that you do, there were certain individuals and business lines where we quickly meshed and I was able to jump right in and help with their problems. But 
in-house is not only a different taste, but it's a different animal. So one of the things that I often explain to my candidates who are frustrated with law firm life is that while law firms certainly aren't perfect, that when you are going to an in-house environment, it is incredibly political. So I think people often complain about the politics of law firms, but based on my experience, law firms aren't generally political. They're just, they can be challenging because you have a lot of strong personalities. But in a company, there are real politics and there is a very clear hierarchy it's clear to some number of people, but not necessarily to the attorneys. And so it becomes very difficult to navigate things. The other thing that I think people don't appreciate unless you do both a law firm and an in-house type of a role is that billable hour that everybody really despises that works in a law firm, that A, demonstrates your value to the firm and B, gives you a lot of flexibility to do a lot of different things. Because again, everybody knows that you're generating X for the firm. When you move in-house, there's no one person that has any idea what all you're doing. So the only real way that you show your value is by showing up, right? So you show up early, you leave late, you try to make your clients as happy as possible, particularly the ones who are more senior on that hierarchy. But again, you don't necessarily know who's more senior on the hierarchy. So when you get those competing projects from two people who are high up, it's a little challenging to figure out which one to do next. But only you know how busy you are and how many clients you're truly helping out. And it's just a very different paradigm. The other thing is that in a law firm, you are being paid to get it right. And so it's really important to get every little detail done. In-house, you don't necessarily have that luxury. And so I think it becomes a little challenging to try to balance getting it done right versus getting it done quickly or in time for whatever that project is needed for, so. I had somebody, I, can we dive a little bit into two of the points you made there about how you demonstrate your worth and the politics of it? Um, and maybe those things are interrelated. I had somebody, somebody I went to law school with who went into compliance once told me his frustration existing in that space was that companies, companies like, and this is obviously a very general statement, but companies like the divisions that add to the black on the balance sheet, right? So whatever generates more money for the company is gonna make them happiest, is gonna get the most attention and airtime from everybody. And frankly, is gonna be the most popular. Compliance, and maybe you extend it to in-house, you're a red line on the balance sheet. And I think you did mention something about this in our last interview as well, right? You are no longer a revenue, you know, at law firms, you're a revenue generator. Now you're, you're an expense. Yeah, a um, cost center. Not only are you a cost center, but you're also like the grim reaper and bearer of bad news when you tell somebody, hey, I know what you want to do. That's not a good idea. We're going to get into trouble for that or we can't do it that way. And so I think I don't know if I have a question so much here is just 
how do you navigate? Well, it is a question that I'm going to eventually get to. How do you navigate that space? How do you navigate being not being viewed in the same way you were when you're at the law firm where you're a revenue generator? Now you're a red line on that balance sheet. All they see is that not, hey, if you listen to me, that red line is smaller. How do you navigate the politics and sort of those competing issues there? So it's kind of like everything in life. You just do the best that you can with the information that you have in front of you. There's, there's, there's no one size fits all answer to that question. And I think that we talked a little bit in the last podcast about sort of mistakes that people make. And one of them that I mentioned is maybe not doing their diligence about the opportunity that they're going into. So in my experience, there aren't too many legal departments out there that all they're doing is telling their business clients that they can't do what they want to do, right? What they're doing is they're really trying to balance the business objective with the legal realities. And ultimately, all any attorney can do, whether you're inside counsel or outside counsel, is give a picture of what the legal landscape is and what the consequences could be for violating that landscape. And then the business gets to make that decision. So ideally on the front end, before somebody leaves their law firm job or their in-house job where they're in good standing and relatively happy, I think one of the things you wanna figure out is, is this a legal department that is respected by those business leaders and where they're listening to your advice, they're taking it to heart, and even if they don't decide to follow your advice, they're at least including you on that decision and maybe even giving you a reason why. You know, it's funny, a lot of people that I talked to, uh, Max, you had mentioned a couple of reasons that people use to, in that thought process to go in-house, right? Being a part of the business, having just one client, not having to develop business, et cetera. And it's funny because a lot of times when I talk to very optimistic candidates to have a very rosy picture of what it's going to be like to go in-house, they'll kind of say, oh, well, as a litigator or, you know, in my, in whatever role, I see all these disasters. And so I want to go into the company and prevent the disaster from happening. And at least based on my experience, what I try to do to manage those expectations is I say, well, look, sometimes, yes, you might have that opportunity, but more often than not, the interesting part is that hopefully you'll get to sit in on the meeting where the disaster gets started and you may or may not be able to make an impact or to change that bad decision, but it's kind of interesting to see how it happens, right? Because when you're at the law firm, you only see the end disaster product. When you're in-house, you kind of see, okay, well, at least I know how this happened. It makes sense, even though it's a bad result. And so you maybe feel a little bit better about it, but it isn't necessarily going to be a situation where you're going to be Superman and prevent every bad thing from happening. Maybe it's the misconception that people think they're going to be decision makers in that process rather than observers and kind of guides as to how to, how to mitigate the damage after the decision they're not really consulted on is made. Yeah, that's probably a part of it. And some of it, I think, is maybe just, I think when you work for a law firm, you produce work products, you get a pat on the back, and you're a quote, great job. And 
you, I guess, just assume that the client took whatever advice you provided. When you're in-house, you see in real time when your advice is taken at 100%, when it's taken at 80%, when you negotiate how something's going to go forward and you come to a solution that you can all live with and when you are just completely ignored. So, I think you're the first person I've met who's made a compelling argument for the billable hour. <laughs> So you go in-house and at some point you decide you want to enter into recruiting. How does that process work? Besides the answer you gave earlier, which was you, you felt you had a fail safe. You could always go back to litigation or to go to a law firm. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that the only real nexus between the fact that I was in-house when I made the move versus having done it when I was at the law firm is that my in-house role was in the suburbs. And I live in the city, so I really had added a pretty lengthy commute onto my life. So not only was I working pretty long hours, but I was also commuting. So I kept my eyes out for in-house jobs that would be closer to home for a long time. And so I knew pretty well that that, that wasn't something that was going to happen been overnight. And at that point, I wasn't necessarily ready to go back to a law firm, although I think I'd had a couple really informal discussions with people about potentially doing that. So it really was just about finding a job fairly quickly that I could do in the city. And all of a sudden, I went from, you know, leaving my house at 630 in the morning and getting home often after seven or eight to the point where I could go for three days without seeing my kids, but I wasn't traveling. I just was leaving before they got up and coming home after they went to bed to working a 9.30 to five schedule. And so I know, Max, I don't want to preempt you from asking me a question, but this leads directly to how Chicago School GPS got started because I was commuting downtown at 9 a.m., which you know, was luxurious after leaving at 6.30 in the morning for three years. And I was walking to the office and I ran into a former scouting colleague who was talking about how frustrating the school search process was in Chicago and how she and her husband were considering a move to the suburbs. And if only there was a company that told you what the schools were and helped with applications, et cetera, wouldn't that be amazing? And at that time, I was feeling like I had so much free time because of my newly reduced schedule. And my good friend, Grace Dolan, who is the backbone of Chicago School GPS, had really done a lot of that research on her own. And I knew that it was a void that she could fill. And so I go back to my office and I called her up and I said, hey, Grace, I think that there's a need here. We need to do this. Uh, she was a little slow to come around to it, but as soon as she started looking at high school for her then seventh grader, she immediately realized that there was a real problem out there, and uh, Chicago School GPS was born. This is great to know, because my literal plan was just to move to the suburbs if I had kids. So Don't do it. No. <laughs> no, never. I, mine, on the other hand, I'm holding on. I'm still in Andersonville, so I'm hanging on by the skin of my teeth. But now that I know this exists, Carolyn, can you tell us a little bit more about how it works? What other than just generally helps people navigate Chicago schools? Like, what does it do? Absolutely. So we work with families who have children who are looking at preschool through college. 
And we work in a number of different ways. Each year we'll have different presentations on uh, different topics, whether it be navigating preschool, navigating elementary school, or navigating high school. And so people can attend those presentations. We do a lot of one-on-one consultations with families. And then we also do a lot of group presentations. Frequently we'll have real estate agents that will have come in and speak with a bunch of their clients. Or often we will be called upon by a play group or a book group or people that have kids around the same age who are trying to figure it out. On occasion, we've been brought in by uh, a group of angry parents at a particular school who are planning a mutiny and wanting to know what their options might be. And uh, there are a lot of schools that bring us in to advise parents on whatever the next step would be. So preschools bring us in to talk about elementary school options. Elementary schools bring us in to talk about high school options. So. Hey, this is Ahmed and Max. Thanks for listening to Employee to Lawyer. I hope you're all enjoying the show and the content and all of our guest stories. And we'd love your help in spreading news about Neil Illinois and the show. Please encourage your friends and family to subscribe and share. And if you happen to listen to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a nice review. But only if it's going to be a five-star rating. Yeah, otherwise we're all set. Where, what is the most common age that parents kind of start to notice, oh, shoot, we don't actually know anything about the school system here that folks come in? I mean, you say you service people in all walks, but like, so for example, in my neighborhood, like we've got kids of all different ages, they're really nice, and what a lot of the parents were saying when we moved in before we had one was, yeah, the, I think it was actually the, uh, somebody who lived in our house two houses ago is an, was a retired CPS teacher who was great at helping people navigate that system. So is there a common age that people come to you or it really is just people come in all walks? It really is all across the board, but I would say that um, probably we have the most clients with kids in those preschool ages, because I think that that is really when people are deciding, do we want to make this move to the suburbs where we don't have to think about it? Or are we committed to staying in the city and we want to understand what that might look like? And I guess this is as good a time as any to, to really plug the fact that the reason that we continue to do this labor of love, and oh, it is a labor of love, is because we love the city. And we understand that there are a myriad reasons that people would want to move to the suburbs if their family lives out there and they have access to free or easily accessible babysitting. If they work in the suburbs, right, you want to keep your life relatively easy. Um, If they're not taking advantage of the city, right, if you're not going to restaurants and bars and plays and museums and all those things, then it might not be the right environment for you. Or some people just want that, you know, three-car garage and a giant yard. To me, I see a giant yard and all I can think about is like all the time it would take to mow it. (laughs) It gives me heart palpitations. So, you know, really our goal is to just make sure that people know what their options are that people understand the richness of education opportunities in the city. And that if people are moving to the suburbs, it's for reasons other than schooling. Well, I think this is 
Excellent. I think one of the best ways to improve education in the cities is to have folks stay around, be involved, because then it benefits everyone. And I think the worst thing you can do is move to the suburbs because you're confused. And so this is a great service for folks in, in the city of Chicago. Well, thank you. And what we try to explain to people and to help them see is that well, of course, there are a number of phenomenal suburban school districts, and we would never try to take anything away from them. Generally, you're going to have one, two, or maybe three options for your child, right? You have your public school, there's probably some sort of a parochial school, and depending on where you live, there might be some sort of a you know, non-dominational day school. In the city, there are multiple public options, there are multiple private options. And I know that for me and for many other people in the city, we have different children. And so we're able to find different options that really suit other people in the city. They send their entire family to one school. So it's really not a one size fits all approach. And I think that in many ways, families and children can benefit from having options although we do recognize that it does take a little bit more time than just moving in and shoving your kid on the school bus. Well, I'm just excited. I'm not going to have to commute 90 minutes now. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad I made you happy. <laughs> Max, you're muted. I am the worst millennial, guys. It's just, it is remarkable. I can't keep the damn microphone locked in. I can't stop hitting mute. We are 20 months into this stupid pandemic, and I still can't hit the mute button properly. It is... It, it is so embarrassing to be the youngest person in a deposition or court hearing and be the only one who can't hit the can't remember to hit the button when I'm 30 seconds into a rant. Um, I know I had a point before that ridiculousness. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I, I had a general question about it. So are you able to help folks with IEPs with special needs challenges and all of that navigating what are the best schools for that for that sort of process, depending on what those needs might be? Absolutely. And to be honest, there is a subset of IEP and you know, behavioral or developmental differences where the city might not be the best option. And we are there to work with the families to figure that out. But for the vast majority of families and kids, there are terrific options right here within the city. Well, that's... That's great. It sounds like a really wonderful program you started. It was a great idea. It's nice you ran into your friend and had those oodles of time, the 9 or 9.30 commute rather than 6.30. So it sounds, how long has the organization been in existence, Carolyn? So it's been in existence for 11 years. And in our, towards the end of our first year, we started our signature event, which is the Hidden Dumb High School Fair. We actually just had our 10th annual Hidden Dumb High School Fair at the end of September. Unfortunately, we decided to do it virtually, which we had done the prior year because it was just too iffy if we'd be able to do it in person or not and if people would feel comfortable. But it really is a great event and it's just really exciting to see so many people learn about terrific high school options that they didn't know about, uh, and also to learn about everything from test prep to executive functioning to certain types of programs like International Baccalaureate. And uh, it, it, it's a lot of work, but every time we walk away knowing that we help people, which is always great. 
Max did it again. again. I did it again. <laughs> My favorite part is since we do this on Zoom, I can see him shouting into the mic and not hear anything. And it's just great. That's like most of my life is me just screaming into a void and nobody listening. Um, there you go. <laughs> me too. <laughs> on that note, my one-year-old daughter just crawled in. Carolyn, who is your shout out of the week this time? Ooh, I get to do another shout out of the week. So my shout out of the week this time is going to be for my daughter, because I certainly would not want to, to leave her out. And she has been she's a freshman now at Lane Tech, and she's been managing a busy schedule while competing on a dance team. And she really just, after that COVID year where it was just so difficult, has jumped right into a new giant school and is navigating it great and making new friends. And it's just wonderful to see. Congrats to your daughter. I know that the organization's event just just went on, but anything to plug with school's GPS? Carolyn's laughing because my daughter, Daria, crawled in and busted the door open. And as I picked her up to be sweet, and she's now trying to fight the microphone out of my hands. It's adorable. Oh, yeah. Not conducive to recording. Carolyn, anything to... Anything to- yeah, your daughter's definitely going to kill that microphone. I hope it wasn't expensive. So I encourage anyone who uh, has kids or is contemplating having kids and lives in the city of Chicago to check out our website. It's shyschoolgps.com. You can see their open health calendar. You can see different events that we have coming up. And if you or your family thinks that you could benefit from some advice, it lists all the services and the different resources that are available to you in deciding what school could be a fit for your family. Remind us again, how do we find Well, you can, you can find me at uh, Chicago School GPS. Uh, you can also find me at uh, lucasgroup.com uh, or you can email me directly at caberman at lucasgroup.com. We'll make sure all that information is in the show notes. Carolyn, thank you so much for coming on, for hanging out with us for quite a bit of time on a Friday evening to do a couple of episodes. You're an awesome guest. You are so comprehensive in your answers. You you kick the crap out of Amit and my outline in ways no other guest has yet. And it was a lot of fun. So thanks so much. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, it's a lot of fun. I got to talk about my favorite things. So it's a great way to spend my Friday evening. Thanks for listening. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.